Hello everyone, it's August 24th, 2021. This week we're going to take a peek at what's going on at Blue Origin. Of course, we don't know, but a lot of people are leaving the company. Then we talked to John E. Ward of Real Trust Space Systems Engineering about putting cameras on rockets and other stuff as well. And liftoff. In the third of the tower, welcome to episode 322 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So I've heard that SpaceX wants to use Starship to launch uh, the Starlink satellites. Uh, yeah, yeah, the next-gen ones. The yeah. next-gen ones, because it uh, will allow them to deploy them faster, but also put them in um, a more spread-out orbit, basically to cover the polar regions a little bit better. Right, to do to do new inclinations, but also, like, they want to do some sun-synchronous um, mm-hmm. satellites, which is pretty cool, because that means that you know, you can target times of day when when you need good coverage. And then, yeah, spread them out in orbit to get them uh, deployed faster so they don't have to deploy them out all in one chunk. I guess they can put Starlink into an elliptical orbit and deploy them, you know, a few at a time and then have them lower their own orbits or something instead of just doing tiny little changes to migrate away from each other. I, I don't know exactly what they're thinking, but it seems reasonable. I guess we're going to talk about a couple of things here, the Blue Origin lawsuit, as well as the somewhat yeah. massive exodus from the company yeah. of a lot of the people. Brain drain. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I feel like we already talked about the lawsuit a little bit last week, but maybe uh, maybe I'm misremembering. Uh, but basically, uh, Blue Origin filed a lawsuit on the 19th. We didn't talk about the, the actual lawsuit, but I think we were talking about the, the lead up to it. But basically, um, when NASA did their HLS selection, right, they had uh, the three contractors, SpaceX, National, and Dynetics. Dynetics was written off as not feasible, more or less, to our tiers. And then uh, National slash Blue Origin, um, the National team was too expensive, and they had some things in the proposal that were, I don't even want to say contraindicated, but like uh, explicitly prohibited from being put in this um, in this contract. And then SpaceX uh, had, you know, a proposal that worked. They had the the history to back it up, um, the, the vehicle history in particular, um, like they already had, you know, working models of, of the rocket they were going to send and the price was the lowest. And so NASA um, didn't have enough money for any of the proposals. So they said, okay, well, here's how much we do have. I think it was um, 322 million is what they had for, uh, for this, for, for hopefully two contracts. Um, but you know, none of the contracts were below 322. So they went to uh, SpaceX, which was the the best qualified uh, proposal and said, Hey, we can't pay you unless you give us a discount. SpaceX basically said, I'll call back in an hour, <laughs> made sure that it was okay. And they, they called back and said, yeah, yeah, we can do that. No problem. Of course, you know, it's a little more complicated. Um, it, it wasn't so much that SpaceX lowered their bid. It was more that they agreed to alter their payment milestones. Um, but in any event, SpaceX was given the contract without any uh, contact to either of the other two proposals and blue origin and dynetics, uh, filed protests. Um, and dynetics pretty much, um, went quiet shortly thereafter. Um, I, I think they knew that they didn't really have a leg to stand on, but blue origin not only filed this, 
this protest, which the GAO, uh, the Government Accountability Office, went and said, no, there's nothing wrong. But but this week, well, this month, they had been putting out, doing a, a, a like an HR war, um, putting out uh, statements and tweets and stuff, basically saying that SpaceX was unproven and their plan was risky and difficult and saying that they were much safer. It, it basically circled around uh, how short their ladder is and how long SpaceX's ladder is and the fact that uh, SpaceX would have to do multiple refueling launches in order to get to the moon. Both are true, um, but both have already been addressed as issues and and they appear to be totally not solved, but we have good good reasons to think that it's not going to be a a major limiting factor. Uh, But anyway, so they filed the protest. They did the uh, Hearts and Minds campaign, and now they've filed a lawsuit. So um, their lawsuit says that they're um, trying to correct uh, NASA's, quote, unlawful and improper evaluation of proposals. In doing so, they were uh, able to negotiate a work stoppage on SpaceX's HLS work um, and in exchange, they agreed to follow an expedited litigation schedule, um, which right now on paper says that they will be done with this, uh, this work stoppage on November 1st. And, the, and they'll have, uh, I guess, the basis or the, the basic parts of their litigation put together. I, I don't think anybody, I, I haven't read the actual, um, legal documents, but I, I I'm pretty confident that they're not agreeing to have finished litigation by November. Um, that that's just too fast, uh, for how, uh, court processes work or court, court proceedings work anyway, in, in exchange for the expedited litigation schedule or, or the expedited litigation schedule is sort of like the, the other side of the deal for being able to shut down, uh, SpaceX's, uh, um, contract work. So November 1st is what's on paper. Um, I was reading, I think it was in, uh, the the verge article that'll be linked in the show notes they're saying that um uh some people familiar are thinking that an extended discovery process might wind up taking place um the discovery would be the the portion of the uh, of the lawsuit where they where the court obtains documents um basically each party goes and finds documents that support their case and bring them to the court and you know, discovery can last forever. So that, that makes sense that that might wind up pushing, uh, things back, uh, beyond November 1st. So the, the reason that I, I'm thinking this isn't talking about the whole lawsuit is because they were saying that it, w- it was going to be slowing down Artemis if they had to do all this discovery, but, um, I'll, I'll see if I can correct myself later. Um, so, you know, luckily for, uh, I guess those of us that really want to see this work done one way or the other, right? Like, of course, you know, us three, we want to see all three contractors doing work. We, we want to see, um, alpaca fixed and put on the moon and whatever. <laughs> um, but you know, for, for folks like us who are, are trying to keep our noses out of the, the political and legal proceedings, um, or I guess not keep our noses out of it, but keep our hearts out of it. At least I am like, I, I don't want to. I don't want to be too emotionally attached to any of the the legal proceedings. But for us, it's really nice that NASA already gave SpaceX $300 million. Um, and they did that the, the very day that the GAO report uh, came back and said that NASA had done nothing wrong um, in awarding this contract this way. Um, Bill Nelson 
is a little upset. Upset is my word, uh, not his word. But he, he's basically saying he's not sure if we can land on the moon in 2024 anymore. Uh, last week or the week before, we talked about um, the the SpaceX or the the spacesuit issue, the X, uh, the XEMU and the XEVA uh, getting slowed down. Um, those would definitely be a sticking point. But now that we have this lawsuit, that's going to slow things down even more. And you know, NASA is trying to get enough money to pay for a second contract. Like lawsuit aside, they're they're already trying to do that. Um, and and you know, really this kind of seems like a, a Congress problem. You know, we need to go to Congress and have them authorize more money because in my eyes, the problem isn't awarding the contract without calling everybody that, you know, that's just bureaucratic slowness. If you know, you're only going to be hired, be able to hire one of them. The moment the best co uh, contractor says, yeah, we can, we can make your lower price. You go with that one. You, you don't sit and oof. Um, but you know, really the problem is we don't have enough money. We need, we need to get NASA more money. They, they have a ridiculously low budget. Um, in my opinion, obviously their budget this year is pretty good comparing to historical levels. Um, and you know, Jeff Bezos kind of uh, agrees with me. Um, the Verge article that we've linked to at the bottom, uh, they quote, uh, something that Bezos said back in 2019 at a fireside talk. He said, um, <laughs> they quote him and they say that he quote specifically bemoaned actions like this. And I love that, uh, that phrase from the verge. Um, but Bezos said that, 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 you know, things like this, uh, protests and lawsuits are barriers to progress. And he kind of said, you know, look at what we did in Apollo. Um, NASA picked contractors and went with them. And, and he kind of looked forward to this very thing that's happened now. And he said, if this happened today, we would have, you know, three different contractors filing three different protests and three different lawsuits and everything would just get, you know, bogged down in, in, um, you know, all of this, uh, bureaucracy and, and it's like, yeah, you know, he's right. <laughs> and he's yeah. so right that his own company did it. So, you know, I don't know. So, you know, in, in response to this, we have this exodus and I want to be clear. We don't know for sure, uh, like for sure, for sure that this is why, uh, people have started leaving, uh, blue origin. Um, but the timing is, is pretty clear, right? Previously, uh, Space News said more than 11 key employees, and I think right now the count stands at something like 17 uh, key employees. Um, I've got a list of all of them here. I don't think we need to to mention every single one, but the new Shepard, uh, SVP, Steve Burnett left, the new Glenn senior director, Bob S left, big name, um, new Glenn senior finance manager, ben, Bill Scammell left, uh, senior production manager, Christopher Payne left, senior propulsion design engineer, Dave Sanderson left, as well as, you know, the, the new Shepard lead avionics software engineer, uh, new Shepard technical project manager, uh, the, um, lead engineer for BE4 integration and testing, uh, BE7 avionics hardware engineer, uh, a hardware engineer has left, uh, Lauren Lyons, um, who, you know, were, uh, familiar with doing SpaceX live casts, uh, had left 
SpaceX to go work at Blue Origin a while ago, and now she's actually moved to Firefly. She's going to be their COO, which is really good for Firefly. I'm sure they're very happy about having her. I mean, uh, the, the chief of mission assurance, Jeff Ashby, uh, he, to be fair, he retired. He didn't go to a different company. Maybe he was looking at retiring anyway, but you know, kind of falls into this time range. Uh, National Security Sales Director, New Glenn First Stage Senior. I mean, the list just goes on. Senior HLS Human Factors Engineer. Uh, all these people have just uh, have left. And, and and again, I want to be clear. Nobody has uh, put out a statement saying, I'm leaving Blue Origin because of X, Y, and Z, and we don't like the way that you know HLS is being handled. But it seems very reasonable to think that most, if not all, of these people don't want their names associated with what I'm going to go ahead and term childish behavior. That's interesting. I mean, that's very possibly a reason, and I'm sure it's a contributing one, but I kind of thought it was just, although the timing is interesting, as you said, um, I thought it was just because maybe they felt a little bit dissatisfied with, you know, just um, progress that was not being made. Mm. They want to, you know, do something, it seems. And I feel like if you're, you know, a talented engineer, you want to, you know, go where your services are actually fully utilized. Um, but maybe that's, you know, not the case. Well, I, you know, I, I don't think you're wrong. I think that's definitely part of it. If you look on Glassdoor, you know, they've got all these reviews um, and uh, The Verge actually like went through and looked at them and they, they said that, you know, basically, if you look at the reviews, it's all expressing frustration with the executive leadership and the slow style bureaucratic management that they have. Like it just takes forever to get anything done. And yeah, that seems really frustrating as as somebody trying to do work. Um, and then uh, The Verge also. Um, pointed out that 15% of Blue Origin employees approve of their CEO, Bob Smith, which is uh, contrasted with 91% approval for CEO Elon Musk and 77 cent for CEO Tori Bruno. It's not great numbers. And, and then there's this other thing that, that I think makes this timing even more critical. Um, right at the end of July, um, after the, you know, the human spaceflight uh, demo, they hand Blue Origin handed out ten thousand dollars to all of their employees, not to their contractors, just to their employees. And they said it was, you know, a thank you for hard work. And apparently the the folks there kind of see it as a bribe to keep them uh from leaving while this HLS battle goes on. And yeah. <laughs> like I, I would too. Like I think it's interesting that it's ten thousand dollars. Like that's that's but a lot of money for employees, not a lot of money for Jeff Bezos. And obviously, like to put it in context, $10,000 is not a lot when you compare to the, you know, cost of living in Seattle. Like these folks start at, at pretty high, uh, income levels just because that's, you know, that's what it costs to live around there. They, they have to be paid more. But even with that kind of tempering things, $10,000 is a lot of money. Like, it's a suspiciously large check. If it was any larger, they might get extra suspicious. Like, what do you want me to do here? Like, hide a body? You know, like, that's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. <know>? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's exactly how I feel about it. So, you know, it just, it, it's a, it's a rotten situation and I, I wish them all luck, you know, like this is tough and and the people who are leaving are are not leaving on a whim they're they're making tough decisions and to some extent you can think of them as as artists having to leave behind their art they're they're engineers doing what they love having to leave it behind 
And so, you know, this, this is tough, like for people, not, not just for us as fans watching a corporation, um, throw itself to the floor and roll around. Like <laughs> it, it, there are people here and, and it's tough. And, and I hope, I hope they do okay. Like I, I, I hope they can make these decisions for themselves and, and make good decisions and, and have good outcomes from those decisions. Well, I, I always love putting uh, Bezos's fortune in context. Uh, oh, here we go. Do you know how much yep. each $10,000 payment uh, that he's given? Like if, if he were to just hand that out personally from his own wealth? Yeah. Are we, are we comparing this to like the median income of the U.S.? I'm comparing it to my income. It would oh, be okay. like me. Okay. You're, you're 10, pretty... 000, yeah, I feel it's, like you're pretty close to the to the median income. I'm gonna say it's something like ten cents or something like that. Close. It's it's half a cent. <laughs> That's not close. So sense. okay, so I was two orders of magnitude <laughs> off. Yeah. What's that though? You know, when we're talking about a hundred and fifty thousand millionaire uh, giving away ten thousand dollar payments, but yeah. Let's do three short and sweet. And Dennis, what is the first one? First up, Japan tests new engine type. JAXA has announced the world's first successful demonstration of a rotary detonation engine, or RDE. Using a series of controlled explosions around an annular combustion chamber, this style of engine is significantly more efficient than traditional ones. Last month, JAXA launched the test engine on a sounding rocket, which flew to 146 miles altitude and made the recent announcement after reviewing flight data. After first stage separation, the RDE was fired for six seconds, followed by a second test engine called a pulse detonation engine, which fires multiple detonation waves linearly. As research continues, the space agency hopes to launch a practical RDE in about five years. And next up, JAXA announces a Phobos sample return mission. The Japanese space agency plans to launch a spacecraft in 2024 to land on the Martian moon, collect 10 grams of regolith, and return the sample to Earth in 2029. This quick turnaround would result in a Martian sample collection before either China's or the United States sampling missions, with returns aiming for 2030 and 2031, respectively. Experts suggest that some of the Phobian regolith would contain material from the Martian surface that was ejected during the Red Planet's large-scale sandstorms. This mission builds on the expertise JAXA built up during its successful sample return missions to the asteroids Itokawa and Ryugu with the Hayabusa and Hayabusa 2 missions. Finally, Starlink satellites responsible for most close encounters in LEO. Researchers have found that SpaceX's Starlink satellites are involved in about 1,600 orbital conjunctions every week that involve close approaches less than one kilometer. Most of the passes involve two Starlink satellites, but about 500 per week involve a Starlink passing by another operator's spacecraft. SpaceX's autonomous collision avoidance software is intended to keep Starlinks from hitting other spacecraft, but their automatic orbital adjustments have made collision predictions more difficult to forecast. With an order of magnitude more satellites planned to be launched as part of their mega constellation, calculations estimate that Starlink satellites will eventually be involved in 90% of all close approaches. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns and upcoming watch parties. Uh, so we talked about this, was it last week or two weeks ago? Two weeks ago. The watch party for the High Frontier, subtitled The Untold Story of Gerald K. O'Neill. Yeah, it's this week, uh, August 27th at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. TheHighFrontierMovie.com is a place to go. If you scroll down about a third of the way down the page, they've got links to the show on Apple TV, Google Play, Microsoft, apparently the Microsoft App Store. Uh, sells movies. 
uh, Voodoo, uh, Fandango, and I'll I'll bet it's probably also on like YouTube Red or YouTube Premium or whatever. But go buy yourself a copy. Hop on our Discord uh, on Friday. We'll do we'll figure out some way to sync everybody up. I'll probably just play audio through my speakers for a couple seconds so that everybody can click in or uh, I got to open the the movie and maybe I can find a good a good sync cue and you can get your playback set to that and we'll all hit play at the same time. Um, yep. We'll all watch it. We'll all act like idiots. Um, there will probably be booze involved. So c- come join us and and watch a documentary and uh, ha- have a, a, a riotous old time. Extra cool upcoming Spacelight event right there. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And then we have a uh, a proper correction burn. Uh, thank you, Emery, uh, for writing in our Discord. Um, evidently, I don't remember when I said it, but this is a hundred percent something that I could imagine me saying lately. Uh, or any, to... any of us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but especially so so I had referred to uh, the Cygnus uh, spacecraft as being uh, you know operated by Orbital ATK, which uh, has been subsumed by Northrop and um, Northrop Grumman. And so um, thanks for uh, identifying that. Uh, my excuse is that I'm reading an older book right now, uh, which is from the age of Orbital uh, ATK, and mm-hmm. therefore I had them on my mind. And plus, that's also the name of my. Um, uh, Kerbal uh, campaign. Uh, my one of my cats' names is Bender, and so Bender ATK is uh, the name of that uh, campaign. And thus, I always have <laughs> AT- I always have oral AK- ATK in the front of my head. So and that's why I made that completion. So <laughs> thanks again, Emery. <laughs> Okay, and welcome to the interview segment. Uh, today, oh boy, I'm so excited. Uh, we have sort of part two to the last interview that you heard. Um, with us today is Johnny Ward, Senior Systems Engineer, Realtra Space Systems Engineering. Uh, welcome, Johnny. How's it going? Hey, guys. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I'm doing well. Oh, yeah. Well, and thank you for reaching out. Um, you emailed me, what, like two or three months ago at this point, and we kind of had a little conversation, and and I just got so excited. Every time I find a, a new small space company, I, I get excited. And and so I, I just got to say thank you for uh, for reaching out and, and doing the discovery work for me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely no problem. Um, so, so first, uh, the reason you reached out is uh, we had talked about uh, Irish space on the show and we we're kind of a little fuzzy with definitions. And so I just I wanted to give you a sec to to set us straight and, and get this nice and clear. Like I, I know the dates like Ireland became independent from Britain in 1922. After that, uh, the Republic of Ireland was formed in 1949. Like, do, do you have anything that you want to like tell us about those two big events? Because they're, I mean, like, I know a little bit about Irish history, but but not a whole lot. Like, if you could give us a little bit of flavor, just as, as um, you know, somebody who lives in Ireland now, like, how, how does this affect you? How do you think about it? How are you taught about it in school? Yeah, okay. I see we're going in with a, a political a political start. <laughs> um, so this will go smoothly. Um, no, but so you're absolutely right. I mean, Ireland, um, the island of Ireland essentially was was part of the, the British Empire. We, you know, we were... Um, uh, in essence, invaded and and uh, um, became absorbed into the British Empire over a, a period of several centuries. And there had always been um, a kind of an independence movement as part of that. And in kind of came to a head essentially in nineteen century nineteen twenty one with the War of Independence. And and Ireland gained, or at least I, I should say, uh, Ireland was was divided into thirty two counties. Um, and uh, post War of Independence, twenty six of those counties 
um, were granted something called like a dominion status within the British Empire, which was, I think it's very similar to what Canada is, for example, at the moment. So there, there was the head of the state was, was still, a, uh, you know, the crown as such. But that was always considered just a kind of a, a stepping stone to, to full independence. And so the, the 26 counties ultimately became uh, the Republic of Ireland in, in 1949. The six remaining counties, um, which are called Northern Ireland, uh, are uh, still a, a constituent member of the United Kingdom. So on the island of Ireland, essentially, there's two jurisdictions. There's, you know, the Northern Ireland, which is, you know, in the United Kingdom, and then the Republic of Ireland, which is a completely independent state. So when you're at, you know, St. Patrick's Day uh, festivals in, in the United States and you see like a green, white and orange flag, that's a national flag flag of Ireland. And, um, you know, the capital is Dublin and Ireland is uh, in the European Union. And we actually use the euro currency. So we're also a member of the eurozone. And, and so a part of a part of why I reached out was essentially just to, to make sure because, you know, in this time with, with regards to Brexit, which was the United Kingdom voting to leave the European Union, um, you know, Ireland was and the United Kingdom was kind of at the forefront of the discussion because the United Kingdom only has a border really with with, with Ireland. Uh, and that's that border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. And because of our membership of the European Union, both sides, we also have a common travel uh, arrangement between both, both countries. There was no physical border infrastructure in the in the 90s and onwards part of that was was part of the peace process etc so there was you know a lot of importance given to the good friday agreement um or the belfast agreement which was part of the peace agreement in northern ireland that in a way you know both both communities in the north i think could could kind of say they were either british or irish and, and there was no real it was almost like a schrodinger's country in a way i look at it, it you could be either or depending they have access to both, both passports if they want and uh, brexit put a, a, a bit of an awkward situation there because you you if you leave a, a common um, you know customs union and single single market union you have to essentially have a have a customs border etc and that caused a lot of friction and it's it's being dealt with and and obviously it's kind of a complex situation now. Um, but, you know, I, I'm just very mindful that people be aware that Ireland itself is, is a separate entity um, and that we have our own industry and that we have our own um, vision for, for how things should be. And we're very proud members of the European Union, I would claim, very high uptake and, and our positive um, feelings for that. So it's just that sometimes, you know, we kind of get thought of as part of the UK. And I understand that we're a small nation, we, you know, we're speaking English as well. But it, it does matter for me because I care about Irish space industry and I want us to be considered a um, separate thing because I don't want something like Brexit or any of the, the kind of associated thoughts around that to, to impact us. And um, and that was all. That was just it was a part of the thing. I just wanted to kind of clarify a little bit. And uh... so let's let's get back into this unifying force that is space, right? Like the overview effect blesses all of us. Um, and so let let's go talk about space. Um, so one of the, one of the first things that you uh, mentioned uh, about the work that you do was Vicky. And, and so my guess is that it's an acronym of video kit v i k i but the the whole system i've seen referred to as the independent video kit um did did i interpret that correctly yeah absolutely right yeah so vicky is exactly that video kit um and the independent aspect of it is kind of the the important thing so we have 
So Vicky, we, we have essentially the, in, we call it autonomous Vicky, ultimately. And the point of that system is to have as minimal impact, to offer a camera system that's essentially minimal impact at the launcher side. And so what does that mean? It means that it's a self-contained system. So actually Vicky has its own power system. So it's actually a, a primary battery source. It has a, a power distribution and control unit, um, a data concentrator unit, which is in essence um, kind of a brain, if you will, and and network switches and also either a CCS, DS encoder. Then it also has two RF transmitters to hook up to the launcher antennae uh, and then also up to six uh, high def, uh, high definition cameras. So we wanted to be able to offer this kind of uh, bundle of a video system to be able just to go to a launcher and be like, hey, you want to have a very minimal interaction with the system uh, because Vicky also comes essentially preloaded with, with a sequence that can be user defined on ground. But the way you iterate through um, commands is essentially you just use a, a dry loop system, which is in essence uh, at the launcher side, you connect to a 28 volt pin and you just pull it to ground when you close the switch. And in essence, that just tells Vicky, hey, either A, turn on or B, move on to the next command in your predefined sequence. Or the third option is just uh, to reset the sequence. So you can imagine if you're uh, if you have a launch scrub and you're kind of partway through your your sequence. You can actually just reset the sequence then to to prepare for the next launch, and and so it's a very very minimal interface. So it, it's it's just two wires, you know, ground and enable or whatever. And so to to reset, are you clicking all the way through to the end of the sequence, or or is there a second line to send that? Yeah, sorry. So there's three dry loops basically. So there's three pairs, if you will. Um, so one is just the, the the fundamental turn on, turn off. The second one is that iterate through the the sequence, and then the third one is reset the sequence. So you can, yes, if you you could just cycle all the way through and you come back to the start, or the third one is just quickly go back to the beginning again, and and that sequence is preloaded um, on ground. That is like unbelievably simple. Yeah, that, and that's exactly it. We just didn't want to generate a lot of stress at the launcher side, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For I mean, I, I don't, uh, unless you didn't talk to the vehicle at all, like, I don't know how you could get any simpler than that. Okay. Okay, great. So um, you mentioned uh, a couple of definitions and I was trying to do like three things at once. Um, so I was hoping you could go back over them. So I think you define PDCU and VDCU. Could you say that again for me? Yeah, sorry. So the, the PDCU is this power distribution and control unit. So in essence, that's um, that's actually kind of the side that is connected to the uh, launcher side. Um, it also takes the power from the batteries and it essentially just distributes either that initial, um, you know, it, dis- it distributes the dry loop commanding to the brain of Vicky, which is in the, the called the Vicky data concentrator unit, the VDCU, um, which then goes and programs cameras, et cetera. Uh, but the other nice thing about the PDCU is that the it powers up the various subsystems of Vicky, so cameras, um, the VDCU, the two RF transmitters, etc. But it also each line is independent and separate, and also has its own um, latch up current limiter. So if you have a scenario where maybe you get a, a cosmic ray or, or something that causes a, a current spike, or, or at least a, you know something to to have a, a large current draw. The PDC will basically latch that latch that line and protect everything else. So it's got a nice kind of redundancy aspect to it, or at least protection aspect to it. And the VDCU, um, as I said, it's kind of the brain, I would say, and it's essentially where that sequence is preloaded, and it's a system then that will program the cameras or um, you know tell the PDCU to turn off and on certain cameras. 
uh, and also it will pipe data from the cameras and the housekeeping, et cetera, through to the um, RF transmitters uh, to align then obviously transmission of the, the video stream to ground. So the, uh, the PDCU is connected to your transmitter just for power. And then the VDCU is, is actually commanding the, and, and sending the data. Yeah. And that'll be, yeah, we have an, a kind of a CCSDS encoder, uh, in, in the VDCU so that, that can all get kind of prepackaged and sent then just for, you know, conversion into to RF energy. Cool. I like that. All right. So, uh, before we, we talk too much more about, um, the system itself, um, I wanted to talk about what it's going to be used for. So uh, it's actually going to be flown on the James Webb launch. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So we are providing a, an autonomous Vicky. It's already on a, the Ariane 5 launcher now. That's a, a two camera configuration. So so one thing about Vicky that's nice is, you know, there's you don't need to put up there's up to six cameras. Um, so you can have you can have reduced amount if you need. And so for the the JWST launch, it's, it's two cameras um, that'll be not externally mounted. They'll be looking essentially at the JWST and, and kind of fairing area. So will these be internally mounted? Sorry, I just want to clarify that. Yeah, yeah, they'll be they'll be uh, internally mounted in, in the upper, well, I guess, in, in that kind That's of payload, payload bay. Yeah, so it's all it's all in the payload bay. Um, and then are you doing downward looking or downward facing camera as well? No, no, not as far as I'm aware. No. <laughs> so I think they're just two looking up essentially really at payload and fairing, uh, but no, nothing looking down. No, it just is on the Ariane 5, I should say. In the Ariane 6, um, the Vicky system, there'll be two, two externally mounted cameras looking, looking down. Um, and then four uh, internal. So there's, you know, it can, it depends a little bit on, on Ariane group, what they want to do, but, you know, there could be an option to look at the, the upper stage, you know, the bell of, of the ULPM and, um, three in the payload area, depending on, you know, if they stack two satellites or not. Yeah. That, okay. That's, that's really interesting. So would, would you have a, a separate, um, system in the first stage and on the second stage? Like, I know this is like way out in the future and there's probably a lot of, uh, uh, NDAs and things, but if, you know, if you can answer that, I'd love to hear um, if it would be two separate systems or if you would just like sever lines when um, that are running through the interstage when stage separation occurs. Yeah. So I think all, you know, there is mass to consider always. So I think there would be a Vicky system um, with all the cameras in essentially the, the upper stage. But those two cameras, those two external cameras would be would be on the upper stage looking down. So, you know, I still think you would get the the effect if you will of, of that kind of yeah externally mounted looking at the boosters etc i should also mention actually vicky has this there'll be some options either of illuminated or non non-illuminated cameras or cameras with illumination or without illumination so externally obviously non internally there will be some illumination provided as well okay and i think that's that's kind of what i was looking at uh, looking at you know what a vicky camera actually looks like it you know it's it's a box with the what's very clearly the uh, the camera lens on the one end but then you see sitting above it what looks like a second lens uh, facing the same direction, but that's the illumination. Exactly. Yeah. So oh. you would, yeah, exactly. So you'll see one with, with just a flat top and that's oh. essentially an external camera. And then one with that big, uh, that LED on top, that's, that's for the internal illumination. 
And the spec sheet says it's a two watt LED. So like <laughs> this thing's bright. I mean, it's a, it's a honker. Cool. Um, so do you know, well, first off, I really love how much uncertainty there is in the system because it's so flexible and independent from the vehicle. Like I, I love that the answer, one of the answers you gave was it depends on what Arian group wants to do. It's like, whatever, like we just build this stuff. Like you can put it wherever you like, you can look at whatever you want to do. We don't care. Like that's, that's actually pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, I mean, that's exactly our philosophy about it. It's, it's, it's yours. You, you do what you want. <laughs> you know, we, we, it, it's capable of dealing with the launcher. Uh, it's, it's validated to, to, to do what you want, but where you want to put it, you know, feel free or, or confident. And do you think there's going to be, I mean, like, obviously only time will tell, but do you think you're going to need to do any updates uh, before you could actually fly it on Ariane 6 or will it, are, are you happy that it's going to be the same system? Yeah, no, the, the system is qualified to fly on both launchers. So, um, you know, we, we have passed the, the qualification review. And so it's, it's, uh, it's capable of, of going where we've, in fact, we've delivered obviously the, the JWST Vicky and, and we'll be delivering shortly the FM units for the, um, A6 maiden launch as well. And we're always, always thinking about the next step though. And I think there's, you know, we'll be looking to see what improvements we can make uh, because the system was developed in a, you know, a remarkable amount of time. Essentially, we went from concept to, to flight model delivery in under two years, fully qualified during COVID. So it was, it was quite, quite an amount of work. Um, but I think we're already going to think about what, what improvements we can make and, um, you know, drop mass, et cetera, like that. You know, th those are the things we're, we're going to start optimizing on next. I think just out of curiosity, how much does the whole system weigh? Um, yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, so. You're probably talking, let's say, with the battery configuration, that's about eight and a half, nine kilos. Uh, camera's about a kilo. So it could be, yeah, 20, 20 to 25, something like that. That's not too much considering you're launching it on a, you know, like along with a giant telescope, but obviously every... Yeah, yeah I think relatively and, we're okay. Yeah. But, you know, every every kilo counts and, and we want to, to ensure that, mm. you know, we can justify to, to the launchers that this excess mass, you know, it's worth it. Because you, you can see that certain, you know, some people don't mind not having video. I, I think it's, it's absolutely crucial to have that, to have a video system on your launcher. I think everyone appreciates seeing it. And, um, even from an engineering side of things, it's not useless to have eyes, uh, at all stages of the launch. So I think it's important. Well, I, I, I that's actually a really good segue. I wanted to ask you, um, about previous, uh, cameras flown on, uh, on Ariane. So like, I know that I've seen, you know, really horrible, like low def footage from, I don't know, before 2010, at least. I mean, it's, it's been a long time, but there have been cameras, uh, um, at least showing like booster separation. Um, like, did you share any knowledge with those previous systems? Did you find any, um, any requirements that those systems like had actually affected, uh, Arian 5? And like now you have like this mounting post that's there, but it's empty and now you can use it. Like, what was there any bleed over or carryover? Um, so in the sense of Arian 5, no. Um, the, you know, we were, we were essentially completely fresh program and project. And I would say in the very minor thing with Ariane 6 is that I think the aerothermal covers being used, um, were, uh, similar in terms of volume that we had, we had to kind of get into, <laughs> but that's all. And I, I actually don't really know anything about that original system. All I, you know, we just essentially started from scratch with, with Ariane group for this one and, um, you know, went, went from there. 
Okay. Well, you, you mentioned one of the other topics that I'm really fascinated by, and that's that's physical interfaces. Um, obviously, your your data interface is dead simple. Um, were you given like mounting points uh, that you had to, to match, or did you get to uh, have a little bit of influence over that interface? Uh, yeah. So actually, from really the only thing in terms of mechanical interface was just you know use um, M6 fastener holds that's it like use m6s and and that's it so um we in terms of mechanical interface we drove that so you know we made our design etc and and it was uh, it went through obviously the preliminary design review critical design review with ariane group and so they accommodated our uh interface so we weren't given anything in context of you know it must have this dimensionality there may have been a volume requirement but a, you know pretty standard but but nothing really drove it in that sense so it was it was actually very nice you know the working experience with Ariane group was excellent and it was done in a very uh, co-engineering aspect so we used to, we had you know weekly meetings with the Ariane group engineers and and program management etc and they really really supported us and and it was a very pleasant experience so they were as much um, involved in, in what we wanted to do as as anything. Neither side just kind of showed up and said, you know, here it is. Thank you very much. So is that level of freedom as unusual as it sounds to my ear? It's absolutely bizarre to me to hear, oh, yeah, use M6s and then whatever else you want to do, you're good. Like, you know, here, here's the space you can take up. But like, we're, you know, we we paid a lot of money for this uh, for this uh, um, this tap and die set. So we can we can put screws or uh, uh, threaded holes in any. You know. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's it. But this this is it. At the end of the day, you know, they're engineers and, and they build rockets. So they're, they're not afraid to, to actually. Um, make a system that'll that'll accommodate us uh you know i don't want to sound like it was complete free for all we had many hundreds of requirements <laughs> but uh you know really what was driving design would have been essentially kind of mass um really mass arguments i would make and then just surviving the environments that we were given the requirements in terms of environments for launcher um but beyond that as long as the design was you know pretty common sense and, and not extremely awkward uh we were we were good okay yeah I, yeah i guess it makes sense the the physical interface there is like the least concern the feature of least concern like that that's not what you need to worry about okay okay so, so i was hoping you could maybe talk a little bit more about um some of that co-engineering experience like um were there any things that you can talk about that that stand out in your memory where like where realtra had a a, a preconception or a design that you were really happy about and it, it wouldn't work for one reason or another like could, could you talk about that that back and forth it's funny we never really had anything that um, caused a major issue i would say um we probably modified some aspects of the design just to accommodate some uh, additional things that ariane group would have wanted uh you know the first example i can think of is that on ariane 6 I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here. I think there'll be a, a cryo cam uh, on the, on that system for for engineering purposes. So there was some slight modification to be able to get uh, that system talking to us and 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 pass through our system. We we weren't providing that uh, cryo cam, and so you know that would be like a slight adjustment to our design. But the good thing was, you know, we we worked together to incorporate it without 
Uh, and this is a, the, one of the nice things I think about Realtrend and even just small small startups when dealing with with bigger companies and primes. We didn't immediately sm- slam the brakes on and say, okay, you know, a contract change, uh, please. And, you know, we have to talk about money. We we talked and incorporated it and went through it because we knew that they needed it and and we could really do it. And and it was that that would that would have been quite a you know change at the time to to go through with that but but we did and I think it worked out well but otherwise you know nothing really comes to mind they were they were never um come up with surprises you know we had well defined requirements to be fair and again with the beauty of the co-engineering work and the regular interactions is that everyone knows what's coming and there's no surprises you know, there was no surprises at any of their formal reviews because we had talked a lot. And I, I think that was very important. So that's why I can't point out a moment where, oh, yes, this happened because it probably happened very incrementally over several months of conversation, yeah. if that makes mm-hmm. sense. That, that's a wonderful answer to be able to give. That that's, yeah, sounds right? like a very great relationship. <laughs> Good experience. So so Stanley uh, in the chat has a, a great question. And I I, I love these in particular because these are the ones that seem ungoogleable to me. And so having a professional like you here, uh, is, it's the perfect time. And so, um, just as I guess a practical matter, is, is Vicky classified as payload or is it part of the Ariane rocket? Hmm. So it's part of the, the rocket. That's something to really consider or thought about, but that, you know, that, that could apply to so many different kind of like, you know, peripheral things that are sitting up in the yeah, payload bay. Yeah, exactly. So I'm guessing that you probably want to use this system on some other launch vehicles besides the Ariane. So what are your plans as far as that goes? Or is that not a plan? Um, because it seems like, you know, you could kind of streamline the whole camera feed process, which is something that, you know, just like you said, some rockets have and some don't, but, you know, they should really all have and and it should be something that can be integrated very easily, or at least I think so, because it doesn't seem like it's, you know, too complicated because uh, that's how you've laid it out so far. That would have been a brilliant question for the chief commercial officer, Danny Gleason, who was on the previous podcast. All I can say is that, um, you know, absolutely, we're, we're trying to um, get Vicky on, on other systems. Um, I... Couldn't comment any further um, on, on on the status of that, but you know we we build this for Ariane Group absolutely. But you know I think there's other systems that could definitely benefit from from Vicky. Well, also thinking about the future, what could be for the hardware itself, kind of, or maybe even the software, the next steps for kind of upgrading uh, Vicky 2.0, say, or even just something like uh, weight reduction, or like you know as far as performance or weight or anything. Like that. Yeah, I think um, I have to probably be slightly careful here because this is yeah you know, it's, it's part of our ongoing efforts um what i think in the in the cots you know in this commercial off the shelf uh space with regards to to camera systems you know that they're they're shrinking all the time and uh you're getting even more kind of better compression or at least you can perform the same compression on smaller and smaller boards and and um you know i think that would be a kind of an obvious next step would be to to see if you can shrink shrink the volume Mm. and then you know ultimately we have nice flexibility in the battery system, um, so so there's actually kind of a modularity in terms of of the batteries, uh, the, the the mass we can do depending on the mission profile. So for how, how much essentially amp amp hours you need, um, so that there's that kind of flexibility there. Um, and then otherwise, I, I think not per se for Vicky, but some of the things we were were involved in might is actually kind of wireless technology. And I think you know one one thing that's not talked about a lot. Uh, or, or maybe it is, but it <laughs> doesn't seem to me to me. Uh, harnessing in, in launchers is, is a massive mass fraction or at least substantial. 
And so that, that's an interesting aspect there. You know, can you can you get more wireless tech uh, onto the launcher and cut out some of that harnessing? So so one of the one of the things I was thinking about is this is you know a, a vibration tolerant system, and I believe that you personally have had experience designing. Um, systems for space itself. I was hoping you could talk about the the similarities and differences of designing things purely for the ascent phase versus designing something to live on orbit. That's a yeah, nice question. Um I'd say the 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 thing about ascent phase uh is the ascent phase, let's say launcher versus uh, like a payload. It's just all the levels are cranked up and you also um you know, you have to essentially have to deal with this kind of fatiguing aspect as well so you really do need to sequence things and make sure that that your system is fatigued as you go through the the for example development or qualification testing um so i would i would argue that yeah that that difference is it's not there's not a huge issue i mean radiation is probably less important actually for obviously a short-term mission versus when you're designing for uh, a deep space mission so so we're kind of less concerned about single event effects, et cetera. It's still a factor we have to, you know, have to think about. And, um, you know, we do radiation analyses, et cetera. That's probably the biggest difference. Um, and then, honestly, the other one is just that the levels are much, much higher. And, and that's just because you're outside of the payload envelope. Yeah, exactly. You're, you know, you're either close to, to pyrobolts um, or, yeah, you're, you're in close to the engine essentially or, or and, and not going through all the various probably db reductions as you get up to the to the payload area so that was very challenging especially when you you want to have a, a kind of cots approach to these things and you get very tough requirements you know we want to use cots as much as possible and when you want to use cots and you want to use them in an aggressive environment, you have to think very carefully. Firstly, um, at the at the cot system, you may want to get. You want to make sure there's you know you, you have good good hard look first to see if you think it can do it at all. And secondly, is where do you think the weak points are? And and we believe in really what I would call like quote unquote augmented cots. Um, just some to be honest, not not major modifications, just some ruggedization that you apply to these systems to to get you um to get you that ruggedness so that you can. Um, the robustness that you need to survive, survive, you know, random vibration, sinusoidal vibration, shock levels, thermal cycling, thermal vacuum, all that, the fatiguing associated with that and then the kind of violence of the, of the launch. I mean, if you look at the Vicky system, you can see that those cameras, we didn't buy them like that. They're, they're kind of encased. They're like little tanks <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, and that, that's a, that was a kind of a, a first, first reaction to, to how to get them through the system. I, I think ultimately as well, that could probably come down slightly as well in terms of complex, or not even complexity. They're not particularly complex, but in terms of mass reduction and, and see where we can shave away things um, because it's all ultimately about margin. When you order a component, can you look at the data sheet and know what kind of work you're going to have to do? Or do you find that your intuition starts kicking in once you've got the product in your hands after delivery? I think now, after the experience, we can kind of front load it, probably even at the data sheet level and say, you know, I we think that's going to be an issue. I think that could be an issue. Um, so so I think that's an experience thing. Um, getting it's it's also hard to beat getting something in your hands because, you know, if you have some internal wiring, et cetera, being able to see how that lays, uh, if you know what vibration might do to that, will you have some rotation in a connector Will you have flopping of a, of a wire, for example. And, you know, there's some, some of that you kind of can't get from a data sheet, obviously. 
And sometimes, you know, if you're buying a COTS component, it comes to you as a box. And, and so you, you don't know the internals and sometimes you, you need to see the internals to be to understand exactly what's going to happen. So I would say it's, it's probably um, it'd be rare and, and probably a bit reckless to just buy a COTS system and, and just just lash it on to, to something. I think you need to, to have a good look at it first. It, it makes sense. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, have you ever done uh, a disassembly of a product on your own? Like, have you ever had the pleasure of sitting down at a workbench with a, a Dremel tool or something and going, I'm going <laughs> to see what's inside of you. Let's, let's heat, let's um, heat up that glue. Probably more. Yeah. Oh yeah. We, we, we have, um, in kind of in other things, not necessarily for Vicky. Um, you know, we, we do look in, into certain things like that and not, not as brutal as, as with a Dremel per se, but, um, you know, we, we, we do like to take things apart. We're, we're definitely kind of a, there's some hackers, uh, in the company, let's say that, that love to tear things apart to have a look at them, which is what we want. We, you know, we, we kind of strive to have that kind of curious hacker type in the company. All right. In your documentation, uh, there's an acronym EGSE, which, I'm assuming is electrical ground support equipment. Mm, correct. Okay. So, so you'd got... like me to talk about that a little bit? Too. Well, yeah. I mean, in your diagram, uh, in like the system diagram that, um, that shows like the high level organization, it, it says EGSE and like you're bolted to a rocket. So is that, is that getting power while you're still on the ground? Yeah. So that EGSE, that's, um, a system we were, uh, providing specifically to Ariane Group for Vicky. And it's what it basically is, it's a, it's a system on ground that can receive um, video stream from Vicky either directly via Ethernet, or it can actually, um, you can connect RF, an RF cable into the back of that system. And it allows you then to uh, demodulate and decommutate the RF um, side of things. And you can see how that's looking. You can watch the video stream on that machine and or give you an Ethernet access and kind of bypass that side of things and go directly into the VDCU. And so that's a nice system um, just to allow essentially uh, test and, and debug of Vicky and it interfaces with the launcher. Oh, and it can power Vicky, excuse me, it can also power the system as well. So you can actually power, power Vicky, you know, um, bypass the battery. You can power Vicky itself, uh, and then you can get the data through Ethernet and or RF. So, so you can get all the, the kind of parameter space checked out, um, basically from the gantry. Right, right. That was going to be my next question. So this, this all goes through the gantry. This isn't like during integration. I mean, you, it, it can be bench top. You know, if you have, if you have a, a bench, Vicky on a bench, I mean, that's what we do before we send it. We, we, we put, after we do our acceptance testing, all, all the units of Vicky, we put it all together, you know, in our clean room, all laid out, everything hooked up, and then we'll attach it to our EGSE system and power it, check the data is coming either over, over Ethernet and or RF. And, um, Essentially, that's the same capabilities you can have pre-integration. You know, you're in the integration hall. You can check Vicky on on a bench, install it on the rocket, access it through you know whatever interface they have on the launcher side, and um, and check it out there again. So you know, it's nice for that side of things. You know, you you would know that Vicky is working well before you close anything up. Basically, are they also planning on on talking to it on the pad through the gantry? I don't have an answer for you on that. I don't know exactly how they're planning on doing it at, at, in Karoo or with A5 or A6. Um, 
All I know is that they have the capability. I'm, I'm just not sure if they'll do things over air or, or wired. I, it's just something excites me about the idea of like, you know, you built this system and like you're using the launch tower, you know, like like they're they're actually talking to your system through the launch. I don't know why that <laughs> that's so uh, so cool to me. Ah, it's 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 completely surreal. Um, you know, I had the, I was really lucky to pre-COVID, I, I got to go to the um, to Ariane Group in, in Bremen, and uh, myself and a colleague, we, we got into the integration hall to have a look at the some of the kind of qualification models or, or and various models of of the uh, upper stage of Ariane Six. And it was it was an amazing experience because we actually got to look inside, and they were like, "Hey, that's where that's where Vicky's gonna go in that <laughs> in that box," and and you're just thinking like, "Oh my God, this is like the real deal now." You know, this is <laughs> they're not joking, and uh, it was it was very humbling, I would say, and uh, uh, kind of scary. <laughs> and obviously, with the James Webb launch, you know, um, that's that's another level altogether. So we're very hopeful, you know, everything it goes smoothly and. Really want to see some video from it, you know? Yeah, not just any launch. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, th this might be a silly question, but the cameras themselves are like for the, the James Webb launch, at least. Um, are they on the, the payload attached fitting or do you put them on like the floor of the payload bay? I actually don't really know how that works. <laughs> um, so again, you know, that was at the Ariane Group side of things. But as, as I understand it, there's um, a kind of a small let's say bracket i would say um at, at the side uh that they can mount our cameras onto uh, on either end uh, let's say 180 degrees of, of the jwst i'm not quite sure i think i think they're originally there for for certain reasons but they can um, accommodate our cameras okay so we're, well, we're not you. yeah we're not necessarily sitting on the ground we'll be Hoping up, <laughs> looking at the JWST. And I guess also, if you could talk a little bit more about how exactly you're going to receive the telemetry, like um, how much of an like how much of an issue was that actually? Um, because you said that the hardware integration was not you know too difficult, but then there is also you know just having to communicate with it. And I don't know what kind of requirements uh, you know the Arian Group has um, as far as that's concerned, but I imagine that they're pretty strict. So the I mean the nice thing about about Vicky actually you know this autonomous aspect of it is that there's no um, commanding necessary if that makes sense like the, the the commanding sequence is preloaded so it's essentially you're just you're just pinging it to, to to cycle through that so there's no need for any kind of uplink conversation as such there'll be kind of their own preloaded sequence when to engage vicky to, to cycle it through through the various sequences or the various steps of the sequence and when i say a sequence what i mean is like each command could be okay turn on you know the third camera and fourth camera and turn off you know camera one and two okay change it from 10 1080p to 720 or change the GOP size or, you know, there, there's various configurations and stuff. Um, so, so none of that would be like done from ground as such, right? Uh, then the downlink aspect is, you know, very much at the Ariane group and uh, side of things. So we essentially just pipe the video to the transmitters, transmitters go to antenna. And as long as they have the link budget down to whatever various ground systems they have, um, you know, it should be okay. And again, everything in that sense is kind of it's configured in the CCSDS uh, format, so there should be already, um, you know, it's well, uh, well organized or well constrained and understood kind of uh, 
format for for the ground segment and uh and vicky so you know that that works been tested already and we'll see ultimately what it looks like because again yes it's it's all well and good that you can have this very nice high def camera but as always you have to pipe it through through antennae and and, and depending on your ground segment and, and how good a link budget you have they have the ability through the sequence to kind of um presumably they have phases where they understand they may have poor link budget so they need to drop the resolution and whatnot or, mm. or drop the number of cameras we're, we're not again totally privy to any of that kind of planning but um all we know is that yes we we have this formatting to to deal with uh, to make sure that things are compatible um and I, I guess uh i i don't know that like when we watch um live streams of of launches we we see uh cameras cycled through and people listening into uh the transmissions from like spacex launches i know in particular like the the falcon 9 rocket um doesn't downlink all their video at once it, it cycles through the channels like uh, cctv um are, are you transmitting everything all at once or do you pick and choose and is that is that like the I, I would assume if that's what you do that would be one of the major functions of the uh of the mode cycle function that's that's exactly it the, the mode this this sequence this um state change aspect of it is, is really to just change between uh kind of pairs of cameras we, we can run several um but ultimately it boils down to you know the kind of throttle in terms of the um the the transmitters and and thing and the downlink uh link budget so i would i would suspect you know it'd be on the order of like a, a pair of cameras at a time and then and then cycling through that uh, obviously with the jwst launch there's just a pair of cameras so um you know that would be either both on or, or one or one or the other i'm not sure exactly how Ariane group wants want to do it i should say as well you know we're we don't know what the plans are with regards to to the to the launch and and, and the video um i can only hope that it'll be shared you know as part of like a webcast etc but I, I you know i don't know I'm I'm hoping that, but maybe it's just a for internal kind of consumption. And and like that again, like it's cool that you don't know. <laughs> we we probably don't need to know ultimately, but like you know, because because that's again, we just want to hand over a system that people can put on a rocket and and launch it. You know. So uh, I was hoping to talk a little bit more about that configuration. So um, as you're as you're cycling through um, the the different stages of the launch, if obviously, like you said, you're you're mostly picking which cameras you're showing or you know getting data from. Could could you also change other settings in the camera, like change the resolution or say, oh, we expect to come up over the horizon, so you know, FYI, camera, you're going to have to drop your exposure way down or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I I think ultimately that that sequence will be planned out um before on ground i mean it has that option where essentially you go okay t0 plus whatever 30 we're going to have a good link budget uh you know good line of sight let's run you know these two cameras at, at the max max capacity in terms of you know fps um and and resolution etc and then you know there'll be a certain time in the sequence where they probably need to go okay now we're going to actually keep the cameras on but we're going to send a command to just change the settings on the cameras so we're going to go lower resolution we're going to drop the the fps um and then obviously you can you can maintain some stream with with whatever given link budget you have and then you know at a certain point you might come on to another ground station and you say okay now it's time to switch up to the payload cameras and go high def there and or we'll run three all at lower definition or you know lower resolution so so that flexibility is absolutely part of the the concept of Vicky. here's a question that i love asking systems engineers uh before we start wrapping up 
um, when, when you think about the whole Vicky project, um, either the, the software or the hardware, the, the enclosure or the things inside of it, um, what, be, because systems engineers are, are so spread out over the whole project that, um, a lot of the times, uh, we've talked to systems engineers and they were unfamiliar with any detail below a certain like granularity level. So I, I would love to hear, and obviously that's, less likely to be the case uh, for you because you're, you know, working in a small company and et cetera. But what's, what's the smallest detail that you know everything about, like just exhaustively, like um, one of my favorite examples from the past was um, uh, an engineer had this one bolt that, or it was, it, uh, it wasn't a bolt, it was a rivet and they had to change the position of these rivets because they couldn't apply the right amount of torque to the hand riveting uh, tool if it was in a certain position. So they had to move it just a little bit to the left and like like what's what's the smallest feature that you have that kind of understanding and knowledge of so that's a yeah that's an interesting question and it's funny because at the moment with with the systems engineering side of things i'd say it's weirdly enough probably like some of the the documentation side of things rather than a true engineering question and i think it's just getting kind of bizarrely familiar with something like a verification control document or something like that, where I'm just trying to, yeah, just getting very familiar with each requirement and, and understanding exactly whatever little part of a document that I need to put in to align with, with whatever requirement for the verification, which is probably a remarkably boring answer, I'm afraid. But ultimately then in terms of like pure resolution from the engineering side, it's probably, yeah, something about trying to understand weirdly enough a little bit about depressurization and uh, yeah getting into the weeds a little bit about um you know shear stresses and, and von Mises stresses and stuff of, of things when they're when they're going through rapid depressurization which is something you have to factor in a little bit with regards to launchers when you have fairing separations and stuff like that so that was one of those ones where, where i got a, a a little bit um in the weeds shall we say yeah i saw that you're a former astronomer is that true? Yeah, I, I I would say I was a particle astrophysicist, probably ah. is how I would how I would go into it. Um yeah, so I, I used to work in, in like uh stratospheric ballooning a lot and, and cosmic rays were, were was ah, my background. Cool. So I I did ground based gamma ray astronomy. Um but I think the, the real astronomers would probably make fun of us. And uh, then, yeah, a lot of a lot of stratospheric ballooning uh, for cosmic ray research. Uh, so, so what took you from physics to engineering? Ah, yeah, very a good question. Um, so, you know, ultimately, I was an experimental physicist, really fundamentally, and I was always interested in that nice mix of of hands-on work um, where you're you're kind of building your instrument or putting your system together. But I was also very, obviously very curious about astrophysics and 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 uh, the universe, night sky, et cetera. Actually funny, my father's an engineer and my brother's an engineer. So I was kind of the black sheep of the family that often did physics and now I've, I've come back. And, um, you know, so so I always had kind of one eye on, on that side of things. And, you know, from undergrad, you know, I did uh, several internships at the University of Chicago and worked on a stratospheric balloon experiment there. And we got to launch it from Kiruna in, in northern Sweden, from S-Range. And that was 
that initial hands-on work there really kind of started to, to get me interested. And then even out, you know, at Veritas, when it was getting put together at that time, some some work there, hands-on. And then moved into, I went to Washington University in St. Louis then for three and a half years working on the Super Tiger experiment. So again, that was building that experiment from scratch, you know, really screwing uh, photomultiplier tubes into, into boxes and uh, stacking detectors and, and wiring things up and checking things out, hooking up oscilloscopes to things. So there was always a kind of a, a that that part in me, and you know I, I um, you know just in academia in, in terms of a career I was like well I'm not you know I'm not really sure this is is the thing for me, uh, but I didn't want to leave the the space uh, how would you call it the space environment as such at all I, you know I obviously very passionate about about space and I thought well you know let's see can I pivot into to some of the engineering aspects of this I was always very kind of impressed seeing, you know, people in in clean rooms at NASA Goddard or actually in General Electric's in Tucson working on the Fermi telescope. I always thought that there was something really cutting edge about those those technicians and engineers. And luckily I got an opportunity to kind of uh, when I was in Spain, uh moved into a new space in a in a startup there. And I was a uh, kind of working on nanosatellites then. And yeah, so it was just for me it was essentially trying to still have that kind of um impact in terms of uh you know, doing something important in space, but but not be in academia. So that's how I pivoted out. Um, but I'm not, you know, I I'm still I still am very jealous of of you know really good electronic engineers and stuff like that. I I don't have that that resolution in terms of um, understanding, which I'd love to get at some stage. But as you say, with with the systems engineering thing, it, it's 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 me well because you you don't need the total granularity at that. I, I trust designers and stuff. And I just try and test it and break it and make sure it does what it's supposed to on time and under budget, basically. Okay, before we start getting into our final questions, uh, up at the top, you were talking about this cooperative effort and I, I want to give you a chance to to go back to that if you wanted yeah so you know this was essentially uh related to the qualification campaign for for the vicky system so in early 2020 um we were really ready and preparing to to do the qualification of the system actually in facilities in in germany and then kind of around march about a week before our campaign we realized that the you know the pandemic was was actually really going to have major major impacts things getting closed uh quarantining lack of travel and ultimately we went into a situation where we managed to send Vicky as a qualification unit over to Germany and, and conduct some of the qualification testing remotely, which was such a very new experience and very difficult. Um, however, we also were starting, you know, to, to look at what were the capabilities in, in Ireland, uh, either the, you know, on the whole island in terms of being able to conduct, uh, vibration testing, shock testing, thermal vacuum testing, uh, thermal, et cetera, EMC. And we found that there was, you know, just some, some gaps. So there was no thermal vacuum system in the, you know, the, at the level that would be needed for, for the qualification for, for a space system like this. And neither was there a shock system, like a pyroshock system. And, um, you know, again, with, with, with kind of restrictions, et cetera, we were still capable of, of, of traveling around the island. And, and there was a facility in Northern Ireland called Resonate Testing Limited, which, uh, are quite very capable of, of doing vibration testing, et cetera. So at certain points, we bring Vicky up there to run vibration testing on, on the system and development testing. And we built up a really good re working relationship with them. And in the end, we were talking to them about, you know, God, you know, we'd love to do shock testing. We've done shock testing on Vicky, but it's in Germany and, you know, it's just not so easy to access anymore, et cetera. And they were like, well, you know, we, we could make a, a system that could do that for you, you know, send us the requirements and, and let's talk about it and work together. And ultimately, you know, the, they 
produced a, a kind of a hammer based uh, shock system with you know the correct accelerate accelerometers and they can do the shock response spectrum that was needed and uh, Ariane group are very supporting of, of that whole whole um development and we helped commission that system with with that company and it was just a, an excellent example of let's say taking a positive out of out of covid out of the pandemic um and then also just having this nice interaction uh in in both jurisdictions where it was just uh producing something that was actually useful for for everybody and um it's still you know still operational and something we'll use in the future and funny enough the the other side of thing was, was there's a company called Embio in Dublin which actually produces the the um the coatings for the solar orbiter and they along with us you know we we talked to them and, and in the end they produced a, a really 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 nice thermal vacuum chamber which we used as well for several aspects of the the Vicky qualification so you know we went from a kind of a a, 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 a position where we didn't have uh, and as, uh, sorry, in the third point, we we went out to an EMC facility in Ireland, which again hadn't done things at the level necessary for space, more kind of commercial side of things, and we helped develop that aspect with them, and they really really worked to to be able to run the the campaign for us out there. So it was just this nice aspect where this out of this kind of negative thing, this great uh, capability ha- has grown out, and uh, you know that this one with with the north south kind of cooperation, I think, was a, just a great example of just um, building that kind of uh, synergy or using that synergy across the whole island, and hopefully, you know, we'll grow from that as well now in, in terms of more cooperation because it just is so much easier to only have to drive an hour and a half up the road. To a facility in case you forget a harness or you know you forget a nut uh versus flying to to somewhere and and and, and we will you know obviously we're going to do that anyway but um just having that that capability was really good i just wanted to mention it because uh it was i think it's something important just to show that you can really um get this efficiency in times of need when, when you need to. All right. Well, it's been really good talking to you. So thank you for coming on to the show. And we have just a, a couple of final questions, but the uh, first and perhaps the most useful one is um, exactly where would you like to be found on the internet? Yeah. So you can find me on, on Twitter, uh, which is at Astro underscore Ward, W-A-R-D. Alternatively, you can find me on LinkedIn at John E. Ward, John space E space Ward, W-A-R-D again, uh, and check out the Realtra Space website, so realtra.space. So we're going to move into the final question. We recently uh, switched our final question. It used to be, uh, if you could bring one object with you into space, what would it be? So what we're going to do is we're going to play a game uh, called Overrated, Underrated. And I shamelessly stole this from the Planet Money podcast, and they shamelessly stole it from another podcast. But I have five topics and uh, I'd like your just a quick reaction. Is is this topic uh, overrated or underrated? Is it properly valued uh, by society as a whole, I suppose? Okay. So uh, space video telemetry, overrated or underrated? (laughs) Underrated. Non-video telemetry, overrated or underrated? Underrated. The Ariane 6 launcher. Underrated. Uh, systems or integration engineers, like as a, as a team member. Inter- uh, they are underrated, excuse me. And finally, uh, choosing a career in the space sector. Underrated. I, I kind of knew a couple of those. It's like, I, I think I know what she's going to say. <laughs> those were, those, those are easy. <laughs> I'm going to take credit for having uh, well anticipated our conversation. <laughs> So 
So this week in spaceflight history, uh, so we have some winners. We have Bill Baobab or Baobab, whatever. I can never, I'll never say it right. Uh, <laughs> then we have Dusky Miller, Ben Howard, the Greek and hot stuff, McToddlepots, greatest name ever. <laughs> you always say that one correct. Yeah. So this week in spaceflight history uh, was the 27th of August, 1962, and it was the launch of Mariner 2 to Venus. So Ben, last month, I think almost exactly a month ago, you talked about Mariner 1. So mm-hmm. I actually looked at the notes just to make sure that I didn't, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, re- repeat anything because uh, these are very similar spacecraft. They're pretty much, you know, copies of one another. Yep. And and I actually I actually talked about Mariner 2's fate just like I barely mentioned it. Yeah. Spoiler alert, this one succeeds. So this is the Mariner that does make it to Venus. Um, <laughs> but if you want to hear more about the one that didn't, you can just uh, listen to episode 317. That was the one. So the clue was, hello, I live next door. Sorry, I didn't come and say hello sooner. So you can see kind of like where that clue comes from. And we got an email from the Greeks saying that actually like Venera 1 did do a flyby first, but it did lose radio contact. So that's an important distinction. So I guess when I say, you know, sorry, I didn't come and say hello sooner, I meant for our benefit um, as Earthlings. Like Mariner 1, this was part of the Mariner R program, I guess you can call it, or it was like a subcategory, but again, Ben kind of covered that. It was simplified due to lift constraints of the Agena B when they couldn't use Centaur because they were having problems with the Centaur upper stage, so they had to go to Agena B, which did not have as much lift capacity, so they had to basically, you know, make this like a very stripped-down version um, of what they would have liked, so it didn't have as many instruments. I don't think it was like nearly as ambitious as the Venera 1, um, but it did actually, you know, send back stuff, so that part's good (laughs) really the primary objective was um basically just to like learn about like all the basic stuff that we we know about venus really because um that's kind of what i got from it was that you know we didn't know well i don't know to what extent we didn't know like perhaps we you know had clues but this basically confirmed that you know like venus is very hot and it has a very dense atmosphere so yeah the primary objective was just to take radiometric temperature measurements of the planet and you know gain all that information most of the interesting stuff, kind of like with Mariner 1, happens, you know, during and after launch, not necessarily once it gets to Venus, although that is, you know, the good stuff because that's all the scientific information. But the launch was really interesting. So this was the Atlas LV-3 Agena rocket. So um, the Atlas, and we've talked about this multiple times, it was a stage and a half rocket. So it kind of took me a while to figure out exactly the sequence of events here because you have to remember that there are these two side engines that basically fall off of the rocket but you still have, for all intents and purposes, the rest of the first stage there. So again, that was like the half of the stage and a half. So after launch, just after they jettison those two side boosters, but they still have, again, the main body of the first stage, quote-unquote, they have a little issue. The Vernier thrusters, they actually lost their pitch and yaw control. They look like these little nozzles that basically rotate and they kind of stick out the side of the rocket. So they lose all control and they start to basically start to bang against the sides of the rocket. Or I think that the ribbage was they were banging against their stops. So they were going as far as they could and they were basically just, you know, flailing wildly. And this put the rocket into a roll. So this roll prevented the ground control from maintaining its uplink in order to issue backup commands. So they couldn't actually do anything about this. But as luck would have it, somehow the centrifugal force of the roll actually pushed a loose connection back into place and then they got control of the vernier engines so that's kind of amazing that that happened 
Yeah, that's really intense. Also, additionally, somehow the roll stopped pretty close to where it started, so they didn't have to make much of a correction anyway. Um, and it said that it was within the horizontal sensor range. Now, I think that that means the horizon sensor, right? Because I'm not sure. I actually spent the majority of time just looking into this because I thought it was pretty interesting. So I think that it's in reference to a horizon sensor, but I'm not sure um, if that's the same thing as a horizontal sensor. But basically, um, it was only off by a little bit, you know, just by like a few degrees of, you know, exactly where it should be. But anyway, I, I couldn't figure out what a horizontal sensor actually is, all, although I know what it does, but um, if that's the same thing as a horizon sensor, which I believe takes an image, a, I think it's like an infrared image of uh, the horizon. Pretty much. I don't, know if, yeah, I don't know if it actually forms an image, but it just basically detects detects i guess that's a better way of putting it yeah (laughs) Yeah. and i suppose that if it was out of range it just wouldn't be able to you know give any valid data back it just would know like if you know like if up was down it might be confused and think that up actually was down yeah i right if it's looking at the horizon as you pitch over you're gonna need your roll to be such that it's actually pointing that at the horizon you've got two horizon sections that you could look at you know left and right because up and down is no is no horizon zone so yeah, that I think your guess sounds pretty reasonable to me as well. But but yeah, but pretty crazy that it all fixed itself. I mean, like it really did. Um, but the drama's not over yet. So basically, this caused the rocket to go into a slightly different orbit or a, a slightly different um, trajectory, uh, transvenusion, I guess. Transvenereal? Maybe. <laughs> That's the, you, you think that's a word? I mean, it's definitely a medical term, I'm sure. So it needed to make a further course correction. And this course correction caused uh, the sensors to lose their lock on the sun and the earth. Basically, like one problem causing another. But luckily, this wasn't a big deal. They were able to reestablish their lock a few hours later. So then the next anomaly, which is not related to the previous two, is it, it, it actually lost attitude control. And they don't know what caused this. This is kind of interesting. It's kind of an interesting mystery. They think that it might have been a small collision, but basically, the manner to automatically corrected the problem um, and it and you know they couldn't get any data back before it had corrected the problem uh, so I guess that's a good problem to have and then a similar problem happened again on the 29th of September so maybe it wasn't a small collision because I feel like the chances of that happening twice are kind of small um, but basically they had the same problem and again it corrected itself so something was going on but no one knows exactly what and then on the 31st of October so sometime later um, the next problem was that one of the solar panels failed. The spacecraft, if you imagine, basically just has two solar panels. Um, it has a hexagonal bus, kind of shaped like more or less like a cone. That's kind of how it looks overall. And then it has these two solar panels extending outward. So it basically loses a lot of power from one of those panels. And that caused the crew's science instruments to turn off because it was actually collecting a lot of data on its way to Venus. And that's actually, I think where, I won't say that that's where the majority of the data was collected, but I think that that was a a huge part of the mission was basically to collect a lot of data in interplanetary space as opposed to just at Venus. But those instruments had to be shut down because they couldn't power them. And then they just, because they just had to run on one panel. Eventually, they were able to get it working, but then about a a week later, it died again permanently. But at this point, the Mariner 2 spacecraft was close enough to the sun that they could just operate on one panel just because of its proximity to the sun at that point, um, which is pretty cool. Inverse square law, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so let's talk about the cruise experiments. So it had um, a particle detector. Uh, it had a cosmic ray detector, as all spacecraft seem to have. Um, it had a solar plasma spectrometer, a cosmic dust detector, and um, it had an infrared experiment. Although I think the infrared experiment was actually just meant for Venus. 
there were two radiometric devices on board. I'm sorry, it was microwave. So at Venus, the microwave and infrared radiometers were turned on. Uh, they took measurements of the clouds, this, you know, the surface and all of that. And again, this is pretty cool because I don't know how much they knew prior to this. Um, how hot is Venus, you know, how much atmospheric pressure there is. But, you know, this is where they were able to, uh, like, at the very least, confirm all that information. The scientific discoveries that they made were that Venus has a slow retrograde rotation, which uh, I think a couple of weeks ago we were talking about that, um, how it's slow rotation is actually not stable. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. There's a really cool talk. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. That really cool talk that you gave, which what that has to do with uh, the atmosphere, essentially, basically the chaos of, you know, the dynamics of the of the atmosphere kind of like messing with the rotation of the planet. Do exactly. I have that right? Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. It's, it's yeah. so massive that it's its contribution to the total angular momentum of yeah. the planet is is not negligible. Like, it, that's still true for the Earth, but it's very, very tiny, the effect that it has. But, like, yeah, so I guess, you know, whatever the different modes of how the atmosphere kind of goes around or, you know, it's, yeah, how it's behaving. Like you said, it's, you know, it's kind of chaotic. And, and, um, and, yes, it found out that, like, Venus has very hot surface temperatures, um, high atmospheric pressure, and that the atmosphere, it extends up to about 60 kilometers, and it's actually not that hot. So, you know, we've talked about, again, you know, you could, you know, send things to kind of, like, sit within the atmosphere, and it wouldn't be too hot. And uh, it discovered that the atmosphere is mostly carbon dioxide, and that Venus has no magnetic field. And it improved the estimates of the Venusian mass, uh, or, you know, the mass of Venus. They also found out en route to Venus uh, that the solar wind streams continuously. So this is all, you know, like very early days. And so this is like one of these cool missions where they're discovering a lot of firsts that are so easy to discover when you don't like really know anything, like you're bound to discover a lot of very cool stuff, like, you know, the solar wind and I don't know, it's just um, a pretty cool mission. But yeah, so that's pretty much it. Um, and then contact was lost on the 3rd of January, 1963. Minor 2 is now in a heliocentric orbit. And uh, I guess we don't know exactly where it is, but it's, you know, like orbiting the sun somewhere. So we might encounter it one day again. All right. Well, thank you so much, David, for that awesome little historical perspective of early missions and uh, how that damn thing was able to keep <laughs> coming back to life. Yep. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, so, Ben, you got the next clue. So, next week, which is the 31st of August through the 6th of September, uh, do you have a clue for us? Yeah, we're going to just go a little bit farther in history to 1968. Uh, so, next week in 1968, it's like being in space, but wetter. Und mit Braunschweiger. Mm. Und mit Braunschweiger. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you think you know what that clue is, uh, you want to take a shot at it, go for it. Um, you can either shoot us an email or tweet at us with the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck, everybody. Good luck, everybody. Sorry sorry about bringing, bringing German into it. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along then to upcoming spaceflight events. We got four of those three launches uh, in one docking. First up, we have a new Shepard launch. And so this is uh, NS-17, the 17th flight. Um, and it's going to carry a, uh, a second uh, NASA lunar landing technology demonstration on the exterior of the booster, along with 18 commercial payloads inside the capsule and an art installation on the exterior of the capsule. So it uh, might be cool to check that out, if only for that art installation, to see what that's huh. all about. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And this launches uh, August 25th, Wednesday, at 1335 UTC, uh, launching as they always do from Corn Ranch uh, at that pad in West Texas. And then after that, on the 27th, which is uh, Friday, 
Um, we have Astra's launch window opening. Now, spaceflightnow.com's launch schedule uh, actually has a launch time of 2100 GMT or 2100 UTC, same same thing. A- and that may happen. I mean, it makes sense that they would target the beginning of their window. But if they fail to make that, uh, again, like we said before, the window stays open until the 11th of next month. So they have plenty of chances to... to uh, try to get this one into the air this mission name right so this is rocket 3.3 and it's going to be carrying stp 2781 alpha delta one right (laughs) not 81 (laughs) the number uh uh, 2781 is or uh, stp 2781 is um a uh u.s space force uh payload they're calling it a a test payload um so probably something functional but not particularly expensive um and uh, this is going to be the the first of two uh ussf uh payloads for astra pretty cool um so again that's flying on friday the 27th at 2100 utc out of uh kodiak uh launch complex up in alaska and then after that on the 28th uh, we have a uh, SpaceX launch with CRS-23. So uh, this is a cargo resupply mission. So this is launching um, a Dragon 2, but there's no crew. And I believe that this is the one, right? So this is the mission that's bumping Starliner out of its slot, right? I think this is the one that they were you know, yeah. had been mentioned. So oh, yeah? basically, mm. right. but uh, it, it'll be launching at 0737 UTC, which is uh, 337 on the East Coast. And it's launching from uh, Launch Complex 39A at Kennedy Space Center. So just a regular old resupply mission. I don't know what the details are about the supplies, but I guess, you know, uh, sundries and such. <laughs> I don't know if there's anything cool on there, like, a, you know, like a spacesuit or something. I don't I don't believe so. So if you want to, uh, after that, after watching that launch, if you want to follow it on its way to orbit and to the space station, uh, check out NASA TV. So on Sunday, August 29th at 9.30 a.m., coverage of the rendezvous and docking of the space cargo craft will begin with the docking itself scheduled at 11 a.m. again eastern daylight time all righty those are your upcoming spaceflight events and that means it's time to deal with the show and we would like to thank ronald jenkins and tim dodd for our music we record live on sundays at 9 a.m pacific 12 p.m eastern thank you so much to our five dollar and a patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly including today's show we had colin make it so number one mike and sam join us so thank you if you want to support the show as well please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbital mechanic Mechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you all next week on Robit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.